Greetings and welcome to the Mr. Science Show. My name is Mark West. I recently attended the 20-year anniversary of the Sydney University Faculty of Science Talented Student Program. And let me tell you, that was one intimidating event. The evening was hosted by Adam Spencer and featured an in-conversation with one of Australia's best-known scientists, indeed one of the world's best-known astrophysicists, Professor Brian Gainsler. Also, Dave Sadler, Brian's former mathematics high school teacher, and Alison Hammond, a current Talented Student Program student. The kind people at the Sydney University Faculty of Science have allowed me to put up this audio here, so a big thanks to them. All attribution goes to them, so send any love and praise you have back to the Sydney University Faculty of Science. It was a very interesting evening to hear what encouraged the former Young Australian of the Year, Professor Gainsler, into astrophysics. Over to you, Adam Spencer, to introduce the evening. Well, thank you very much, Tony. The very kind words and a lovely introduction. Welcome to you all, Trevor. Great to see you again here, pulling up in your little red sports car out the front there uh, to celebrate this great night. 20 years of the TSP, 20 years of Clause 17.2, as it turns out. One of my favourite clauses. Uh, 20 years of the Talented Students Program as the university celebrates, give or take, depending on when it starts its date, it's 160 years uh, of existence. And a lot of things have happened in that time. One of my favourite stories about the early days of the university being set up when it was decided and announced to the people of Sydney that there would be a University of Sydney. Uh, The general consensus amongst the people was that that is a fantastic idea. That is what Sydney needs. Back in the 1840s, 1850s, it's what this country needs, a place that brings those academic traditions uh, to Sydney. The only concern people had is why, for something as important as the University of Sydney, had they chosen to locate it in the middle of nowhere? (laughs) Which is what this place was back in 1840, 1850. It was more than 45 minutes horse and cart ride from the centre of Sydney, which was at the time the Rocks. Um, I often reflect upon that on the uh, now 45-minute bus ride from the rocks (laughs) to here at the University of Sydney. Things have changed. Some things remain the same. But what is great about the university in that 160 years, and my unbroken association with the university goes back to 1987, is what is fascinating about this place is that against that backdrop of 160 years, which in terms of European settlement of Australia is an eternity, Within that 160 years here at this place, every two, two and a half years, half of the student body will be completely new. And so while at the higher level you have this ongoing tradition and great academic consistency, there is this constant churn of personnel and ideas rolling through below it. The one thing that's been fascinating to watch over the last 25 years is that the quality of those students who are churning through just continuing to grow and grow and grow, particularly in the fields that we're talking about this evening. And what we'll hone in on a little bit later was what you said, Trevor, about how that quality of student continues to grow, how that then bounces back on the academics, not all of whom have been here for the entire 160 years, but some of whom have been here for a lot longer than that two and a half year period, but continue to be challenged by what's thrown up to them by the students who they are inspiring. And that's what we're really about tonight, looking at inspiration and the many different methods it can take. Our inimitable guest of honour is uh, Brian Gainsler. His work has won him acclaim in Australia and overseas. He's held positions ranging from assistant professor at Harvard at the age of just 28 to a NASA 
Hubble Fellowship at MIT to being an Australian Research Council Federation Fellow. In 2005, he won the famed Newton Lacey Pierce Prize in Astronomy, awarded annually by the American Astronomical Society to an astronomer under the age of 36 for outstanding achievement in astronomical observations and research. In 1999, he was the Young Australian of the Year. Put simply, reading his CV reminds me of that famous Australian saying, pull your head in, pal. No one likes an overachiever. Please give Brian Gainsler a big round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. <coughs> Great to see you. Eh? Have a seat there. <coughs> now, Brian, is it true, I read it quoted of you, you first dreamt of becoming an astronomer at the age of three? That is true. That's when I decided what I wanted to do. Not just, so, so not just had the fleeting thought, not just thought for a second, that'd be cool, decided you would be an astronomer? Well, you know, at the age of two, there were still a lot of possibilities open to me, but <laughs> once I was three, I decided to sort of get some responsibility in my life and make a plan. Not fireman, doctor, superhero, astronomer. Where was the attraction? Uh, my, when, when I was about three, my parents bought me a book called The Album of Astronomy, and it just knocked my socks off, because every other book was full of facts. It was like, this is how tall this mountain is. This is how long ago this dinosaur lived. And the astronomy book wasn't like that. It said, we don't know anything. Please help us. And um, the idea that there were things that we did not know at the age of three, because when you're three, your parents know everything. And you know, we didn't have the internet in those days. We had encyclopedias on the shelf, and you could, you could look them up. And so the idea that there were things that mum and dad didn't know, the encyclopedias didn't know, nobody knew. But if you're really smart, you might, you might be able to figure them out. That just blew me away, and I thought, that, that's what I want to do. I want to figure out stuff that nobody knows. At what age in your life did it become a realistic option? At what stage in your life did it become a trajectory that you were actually following? Well, when I was growing up, I didn't know that Australia had any scientists. I think we've come a long way in terms of the fact that most people can probably name a bunch of Australian scientists and know what, what, we're fam you know, what our great discoveries were, but I assumed that you'd have to move overseas. So when I was in year 12, I actually came to an open day here at Sydney Uni and I um, you know, wandered over to the physics building and I said, do you guys do astronomy by any chance? And I think, I think the response was something like, do we what? <laughs> and uh, you know, they told me they had their own telescopes and they made all these discoveries and I thought, oh, this, you know, I'm going to come here and I'm going to learn how to be an astronomer. Here. So your year 12, what year are we talking? 19... 1990. 1990. So 91, you started at the University of Sydney. Yep. What are your first memories of, of being on this campus? So my very first memory was uh, coming up to the main quadrant O-Week, and there was, this, there was this guy, and uh, you know, he didn't have a lot of hair, and one eye a bit droopy, and he was wearing this academic gown, and there was a group of, there was a group of, um, of students who were going for like, this world debating record. They were trying to debate for 48 hours non-stop, and I just assumed that um, you know, they would all take turns like half an hour at a time, but Adam Spencer decided to go for the record on his own. <laughs> the other guys are like, Adam, you know, and he just kept going and going. And I had going. a few things I really had to get out there. So, you, uh, so even for me, you were the face of Sydney Uni from day one. So 1991, so when did you start involvement with the TSP? So in 1992, um, so 21 years ago, um, there was a bunch of us sitting in our lecture theatre and very mysteriously at the, at the end of the lecture, um, the, the lecturer just started giving out all these unmarked white envelopes to particular people. I'm thinking, what, what is this all about? And we got an invitation to go to a, 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 
presentation where it'd be offered something to get, you basically said, come along and you can get out of some classes. Nice. It's like, I'm up for this. And uh, it was actually um, uh, Dick Collins, who's, who's here, mm -hmm. and, and Lawrence Cram and some of the other um, uh, physics professors uh, putting a pitch to about 15 or 20 of us that uh, if we were game, and they said, we don't know whether this is going to work, and this, you know, this might be a disaster, but if you want to, we're going to try and do uh, an experiment instead of sitting in class for a term. Are you up for it? So it was like a, a pilot version of what is now the TSP. Yeah, I don't think it even had that, that name at the time, but it was just like, let's get a bunch of keen young physics students together and, and see, what we, see where we go. So unlike today, we offered a specific project. I, I don't think we had a, a project. We were just talking about what we could do. And after a lot of debate and discussion, we decided to um, design a physics experiment for one of the labs because we were used to rolling balls downhill and timing, thing, timing pendulums and that sort of thing. But uh, we didn't realize just how tricky it is to actually design an experiment until we had to make one ourselves. What are your, what are your recollections of yourself at that age, 92, 93? So you're, what, 20 years old? Did you already have a sense then that you were academically exceptional? Um, I knew that I had a really good memory and that I was really good at quizzes. But what, 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 I, what I really wanted out of my university experience was to sort of step out without the net. That like, you know, to, to learn how to answer questions where the answer wasn't in the back of the book. Um, and so on the one hand, I sort of felt like I could handle any exam question that was thrown at me, but I knew that that's not what science is all about. Okay, well let's jump forward to 2004, 2005. You and a colleague observe the brightest explosion ever observed in the history of astronomy. For those of you who thought there were fireworks in last night's State of Origin, when Paul Gallen smacked Nate Miles, nothing compared to, what, what did you see? So, um, uh, what happened was there was a, a star, a star we already know about, its name was SGR 1806-20. Nice and name, SGR it, um, <laughs> 1806 so it's already a star, it was already catalogued, we knew it was a bit yeah. of a strange star, but uh, at the end, very end of 2004, the day after Christmas, um, this star um, basically had the equivalent of a solar flare. Our sun has solar flares all the time, we get pretty pictures of them, and if they hit the Earth, they knock out satellites and that sort of thing. So this star gave off a solar flare. The difference was that this solar flare was brighter than every star in the Milky Way put together by a factor of a thousand. Um, it Another way of saying it is that in this flare, which lasts about half a second, it was the same amount of energy that the sun puts out in 300,000 years. So Let the, in, in half a second, this flare represented the same amount of energy as the sun would produce in 300,000 years. Right, which is insane. No one knew that something, a single star could put out this much energy. So this thing is 50,000 light years away. But even from a distance of 50,000 light years, the energy from this flare knocked out satellites all around the Earth. It actually changed the Earth's magnetic field. It disrupted the US Navy's satellite communications. So the way I explain this is that if you know you're a, um, a biologist, you might be used to looking at slides under the microscope. Apologies to biologists, maybe you don't do that anymore. But um, you, know, you look at slides on the microscope, and then you, know, you say, oh, it's 5 o'clock, it's time to go home. You take the slide out, you toss it in the bin, and you're done. But this is as if the slide, you, you said I'm done, but the slide said no you're not and reached out and punched you in the face. Yeah. Um, you know, we're used to just looking at the universe as if it's just some experiment that you can close the book on. 
But this star, you know, punched us in the face from 50,000 light years away. So, so the moment you first saw it, and it's beyond what thought was, what was thought to be possible at the time, is there a part of you that thinks, well, we've obviously got it wrong, it hasn't happened, or do you instantly know that's happened and it just overturns your assumptions as to what was possible? Do you just give away your assumptions quickly in a case like that? I remember the exact moment when we got the measurement of how bright this was, and I knew that we'd made a mistake. I had just forgotten a factor of a million in my calculations. Or I As you do. Part. I actually thought that we, because what you do when you, when you look at these things is you, you always have to sort of calibrate your telescope first. So you look at some known steady bright source to set things up on, and then you move over the object you're interested in. And when the image came up of the object, I thought, oh, don't tell me we're still looking at the calibrator. Because there was this huge bright thing right in the middle, and I thought we'd just screwed up the pointing, I'd typed in the wrong coordinates. And so and what made you then realise, when? Is there a moment when you realise, no, we are right, or do you slowly, does doubt slowly fight with certainty and one wins over the other? So this particular time, we were, um, we were, uh, it was a big collaboration of us all around the world, and so we were all looking at the data as it came in together, and so I had, we, I had it on speakerphone, and so I'm staring at it going, uh, I'm not, want, not sure how to break the news to my colleagues that we're typing the wrong coordinates, and everyone on the other end of the phone started yelling and screaming and going, look at this, look at this. And so I think we all very quickly realized, I guess one person started yelling and then we all started realizing that this just shouldn't have been happening. So, so. That's, that's one of the geekiest conference calls ever. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and this, this is great because this ties in with your excellent book called Extreme Cosmos that walks, which you just happen to have a copy of here. What a coincidence. Which walks us through the universe in terms of things that lie at the extremes, the biggest, the fastest, the smallest, the hottest. Where did the idea for the book come from, and then I'll get you to walk us through some of the highlights of it. So the idea for the book actually came from my, my son, Phineas, who at the time was about six, and he knew I was an astronomer, and so whenever he had a question about space, he'd ask me. I'd say, ask me anything about space, I'd tell you, and he'd say, okay, what's the biggest star in the universe? And I'd say, I have no idea. <laughs> and then he'd say, all right, um, what's the oldest thing in the universe? I'm like, I don't know that. And after a while, he'd just say, well, what sort of astronomer are you? You don't know anything. <laughs> because the, the natural questions for a six-year-old to ask, what's the biggest, the fastest, the oldest, the loudest? I mean, these aren't the things that astronomers research. Um, and even if they did, that, I mean, an astronomer might have researched the oldest star in the universe and not even realize that it was. And so it, when I thought about I should write a book on astronomy, I said, what better thing to do than to basically set the record straight and you know, look up every imaginable record in the universe. And so it took me about two years, and I said, son, this book is for you. And he's like, Dad, I'm not interested in space anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one of the things I looked at, I think there's one, the deepest sound, the deepest sort of note in the universe. Explain that. Yes, yeah, so this is one I had a bit of fun with. Um, you know, some of the, most astronomers would sort of think, oh, you know, hottest star, I could probably find that, or, you know, biggest black hole. But people don't think there's sound in space. But there actually is. Um, space is not a vacuum. It's it's not very low density, but it's not a vacuum, which means that when you vibrate or move, it does set up sound waves, um, and you can c work out what they would sound like. So there's a black hole, a very big black hole that's millions of light years away, and it's basically um, exciting all the gas around it in the same way that when you put a, ho a garden hose in the bottom of a bucket, it sort of makes it gets all bubbly, mm -hmm. and so it's actually making all the gas around it vibrate with sound waves, and you can work out very accurately what the note is, is, is that it's playing. It's a real note, not a note that we could hear with our ears that's too, too deep, but it's a real sound wave. It's a B flat. It's 56 octaves below middle C. So you could play this note on a piano 
if you added an extra 653 keys to the left-hand side. <laughs> What's the fastest thing in the universe apart from light? So, so this is another, another one that you know, took a little bit of detective work. So um, and I've got the book here because this is the, not, not a number I can read off the top of my head. So on the, on the 15th of October 1991, um, above Utah, um, a proton crashed into the Earth's atmosphere and before it sort of disintegrated and disappeared, they measured its speed. And so this is where I had the book here. Its speed was 99.999999999999999996% of the speed of light. Which, another way of phrasing that is that if you had this proton and a light ray and you said, okay, go, you could race them for a million years and the light ray would win by four centimeters. So that's how close this thing is traveling to the speed of light. So this part, not too many protons have actual names, but this proton has a name. It's known universally. Everyone will know exactly what you're talking about if you refer it to by name. It's called the oh my god particle. Because <laughs> no one imagined that any particle could travel this fast. Even the particles in the Large Hadron Collider do not go anywhere near that speed. Big. Tell me something big in the universe, something massive. What's the biggest thing in the universe? Well, when I wrote the book, the biggest thing in the universe that we knew of was a giant sort of chain of galaxies called the Sloan Great Wall, and it's 1.5 billion light years across. So our whole Milky Way galaxy with 400 billion stars in it is only 100,000 light years across. This is 1.5 billion light years across. So even at the speed of light, it would take you a billion and a half years to get from one side of this chain of galaxies to the other. But since I wrote the book, the best thing about this book is the second edition, the third edition, fourth edition, the record's always being broken. Mm. This, this book's just going to be around forever. So just um, at the beginning of this year, a bunch of astronomers in Britain dis um, dis announced they'd discovered a group of galaxies which they've called um, huge, L huge LQG. It's pretty catchy mm. because it was an object called LQG and then they discovered it was huge. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's four billion light years across. So almost three times yeah. what was the record. When so you not only is it insanely big, but our current theories of the universe say there is just simply no way anything that big can even exist. So not only are we struggling with that size, but we, we can't even explain how such an object could even form. Like your bright flash that you observed again, something that, that challenges the underpinnings of what we understand. Exactly. Yeah. Is that exciting that in your field those are constantly being challenged or does it is it in some ways disconcerting because a lot of what you assume now to be true might be on some shaky ground i think that's the best part of it i mean i think every astronomer um you know on a superficial level on a day-to-day -day basis you like to sort of be proven right but on a, in a bigger picture you know the best thing that can happen is realizing that everything is wrong and you can start again because i feel it's like you know when you're reading a really good book you know we all read The Hobbit as a kid, and you didn't want it to end. It was just so good, and you sort of knew you were getting to the end, and the, and the book was ending, and you didn't want it to end. Well, astronomy is like The Hobbit, except every time you get to the end of the book, you realise there's another, that the author's just written another volume. Or like Game of Thrones, where halfway through a series, they just kill one of the main characters. <laughs> what the, I couldn't believe it. Okay, so, and the great thing about also with the book, it's paired in with a website. So as there are individual changes to records, people can go to the associated website and see if what they like in that book still is the record holder, yeah? Yeah, so I've sort of now sort of appointed myself as sort of the keeper of the cosmic records. And so, you know, I keep an eye on, um, on all the different media releases and articles coming out. And when, it, when a record is, is broken, I sort of post it on the, on, on, on the website uh, so people who uh, perhaps have enjoyed the book can sort of appreciate what really excites me, that this is not, you know, just like the book I read as a kid, this is not the facts and figures, this is the way it is. But it's everything is a moving target, and every time we think we understand things, 
uh, a few years later, we realized that we didn't. So 10 years from now, let's say, let's just pick 10 years as an arbitrary interval. 10 years from now, will that book have many of the current records still accurate? Will the website have completely superseded it? How fast are these fields moving? I think 10 years from now, very little of what's in here will still be a record. What's more, this book nicely sidesteps the issue that we don't even know what 95% of the universe is. This deals with the 5% of the universe that's stars and gas and galaxies, but the other 95% is dark matter and dark energy. And 10 years from now, I think we'll have a much better understanding of just what those are, and there'll be all sorts of weird and wonderful, like, you know, dark galaxies or dark stars and all sorts of other things that, that will be the hot topic, and all of this will be passe. Everyone else can hear those fireworks too, can't they? That's not just good. I thought that was just in the back of my head. Um, Young Australian of the Year, 1999. Yeah, so it gets increasingly awkward as you get like older and older. One, one day they go, ladies and gentlemen, I'll come in on my like, <laughs> <laughs> my, my congratulations. Yeah. And what was that process like? That was bizarre. Um, it was, you know, I was competing with Ian Thorpe and Patrick Rafter. You beat Thorpey. Well, I can swim better than he can do astronomy, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and. Uh, what they don't tell you is that when you win it, they don't tell you that this entire program that's been already mapped out before they even knew who the winner is, and they're just waiting for your name to be inserted. So, you know, I, or I was already living overseas at this point. I was at MIT, and I tell my boss, I'm just going over to Australia for a week. I've been nominated for this award. I'm not going to win. Um, a month later, I'm opening McDonald's. I'm, like, um, <laughs> traveling throughout back Australia and sort of talking about astronomy to remote Aboriginal communities. Um, I'm... Uh, uh, you know, in some sort of debate about whether God exists with some, you know, religious minister. Um, I got to see all of Australia, got a real sense of what Australia really is by just visiting so many people. Um, exhausting, amazing When experience. I've spoken to people who've held the young or any of the Australian of the Year categories, they are yeah, immensely humbled, the most exciting year of their life, but they are the single happiest person in the world to then see it handed over to someone else the next Australia Day because you start to get substantial chunks of your life back in some ways? Yeah, so I actually vividly remember the, the day they announced it the, in, in 2000. So I was back in Boston, and at that time I only had dial-up internet in Boston. It was very slow. Um, and I had my web browser open, and I was on the ABC News webpage, and I kept clicking reload to see who it was, and it would like gradually load. It's like, no, they haven't announced it yet. And I click reload again five minutes later, and when it said Ian Thorpe is the youngest around the year, I'm like, go Thorpey. <laughs> <laughs> now, amongst other things, you're the director of Castro, it's with a double... So it's not a Cuban political appreciation society, but it's a nice little acronym. What's CASTRO? So CASTRO is the Centre for All-Sky Astrophysics, and it's something where it's a new uh, $30 million centre that we're leading out of Sydney Uni, but with a whole bunch of other Australian universities. And uh, the goal is to develop a whole new way of doing astronomy, and that when people do astronomy, they're used to getting their telescope and looking at a tiny, tiny patch of the sky. So everyone thinks the Hubble telescope is amazing, and we've all seen those beautiful pictures, but what you don't realize is Hubble's looking at a patch of the sky about half the size of your, of your fingernail. But there are these big, big questions like what is dark energy that you can't answer by looking at a little patch of the sky. The next big set of questions you have to actually answer by looking at the whole sky at once. So we're working on developing a whole set of fisheye lens technologies in both normal optical astronomy and radio astronomy that you gulp down the whole sky at once with the ridiculous amounts of data that involves and then to, to answer really profound questions about how the universe works by looking at the whole sky at once. It's amazing stuff, isn't it? Please give Brian a big round of applause for telling us a little bit about his career Thank so you. far. <laughs> but tonight we're not just focusing on Brian's stellar career. You know, stellar astronomer. 
Tough oh, crowd. Yeah. Okay. Whew, let's move on. We're also, we're also asking, what does it take to inspire a mind like Brian's and what it must be like for a student to be inspired by him? Now, in Brian's high school years, he studied at Sydney Grammar, where, amongst other teachers, Michael Bishop, of course, instructed him in science, and he studied mathematics under David Sadler. This was no fleeting encounter. In Brian's words, poor David got me three years out of a possible six. Now, as a mathematician, that doesn't sound to me like a coincidence. In fact, assuming there were 17 mathematics teachers at the school, because there are currently 17 at Grammar, I've checked it. The odds of getting one of them three times out of six years is given by the binomial distribution combinatorial formula, NCR multiplied by P to the power of R, 1 minus P to the N minus R. Now, N is six here, that's the six years he's there. Three is R, the three teachers, the three years that he had, David. P is one in 17, the chance of getting David in any given year. So we get 20 times 1 to the 17 cubed times 16 over 17. It's about a 1 in 300 chance that he would have just randomly had this gentleman three times as his teacher. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Hello, ladies. Anyway, <laughs> it was clearly meant to be. A man who had a tremendous impact on the young Brian Gaines. So please welcome David Sadler. Great to see you, David. Oh, thank you very much. Now, as a maths teacher, you probably need a bit of a lie down after that combinatorial stuff. That was nice, wasn't it? Uh, after hours, yeah, I'm not on duty, so I... <laughs> you I... first had Brian when he was in year eight. Yes. What can you remember of a year eight Brian Gainsley? Uh, chubby. <laughs> <laughs> um, cheeky. He was a bit he... cheeky, was he? He was. He, had a... he was quite perverse at times. He... That sort of grin he's got on his face right now <laughs> is quite familiar and, yeah, he would just wait until there was a little bit of silence and he would often interject with a, with a sort of a Gainsler comment. So, yeah, he was quite cheeky, but he was also prodigious. Um, he had that mental agility and that quickness of mind that sort of sets the exceptional people apart. I, I want to ask about that because it's ironic. I mean, astronomers, a lot of astronomers look back in time mm. and, and work things out from what they're seeing years ago. And it's easy to look back now with the benefit of hindsight. We know he's been the Young Australian of the Year, the NASA Hubble Fellowship, a world authority on magnetars, a certain type of star. It would be easy to just assume, must have been a genius in high school. Was, was, it, was it evident? Was he, was he a gun mathematician as early as year eight? I've seen better. But... <laughs> nice. But, no, he was pretty much up there. Just that, 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 rare gift to, that rare gift that I would have loved to have myself of just being able to see things like that, just to make the connection, get to the heart of the problem straight away. A rare gift. And uh, so in your experience with mathematics in high school, at what, yeah. age, at what age can you spot genius? Oh, in real, mathematics. Real genius. Well, we only really touch upon real mathematics at high school. We do, it's year 11 and 12. In extension, you're sort of giving students a, a bit of a glimpse of real mathematics, but it's certainly uh, someone, who, someone who has that gift, that quickness, uh, it's pretty much apparent straight away because they see everything straight away and they understand everything straight away. But certainly by year 11 and 12, they'll start to separate themselves from other bright students. And Brian, can you remember in your year or in years either side of you, students who were exceptional mathematicians even compared to yourself? Oh, yeah. I, th I think one of, the, um, one of the great things about Sydney Grammar 
um, is that you come into Sydney Grammar from some local school thinking you're the ants' pants, and you very quickly realise that, I mean, the, the most valuable thing that, that Dave and the other teachers there taught me is, is that everybody there is smart. Um, you've actually got to work hard as well. And uh, there were always people at Grammar that were both smarter and worked harder than you. And uh, so it was very competitive, but on the other side, I think it, I think it put everything in perspective and made you realise that things aren't going to land in your lap for your whole life, that you've got to really want them and you've got to plan and you've got to work for them. David, I heard a rumour that there were a certain elite class of math students who were given slightly different exam papers <laughs> to the regular. They were given additional tougher questions just to make sure they got pushed near the end of the paper. Well, we always make sure, we try to make sure that there's stuff near the end of the exam that will allow the top two or three people in the year to show what they can do. But we often make the mistake of putting a question at the end that nobody gets out, which, you know, it's sort of a waste of time trying to come up with that question, I suppose. How, so how do you nurture it? In people who've got, you know, real mathematical potential, is there, is there a, a secret to bringing it on? Well, unlike when Brian was at school, we now have all these Olympiad programs and we bring people in from outside the school or we use recent old boys who've done uh, the International Olympiad and things like that and we take them from a young age, around about year nine, I think, and, and we just try to run with them and overload them with mathematics and get them all excited and inspired and that sort of thing. When Brian, we're going back 20 three years when Brian was there in year 12. Those sorts of programs didn't really exist. Um, so it was mainly just ordinary classroom teaching and ordinary classroom circumstances. A lot has changed uh, since you were there, Brian. You, do you want to come back and teach the Olympiad classes? Or? <laughs> in high school, should you, tell, should you tell a brilliant student that they're brilliant? Because, I mean, in a lot of the schooling systems these days, you hear kids get told, you know, well done, have a merit award because, you know, you ate a sandwich and, uh, you know, <laughs> hey, you, di you didn't stab anyone today, have a star, nice work. <laughs> but if, if someone is brilliant in the sense of brilliant, brilliant, hmm. should they be told? It, it, it depends entirely on, uh, you know, what sort of person they are. Some of our super-duper smart boys already know that. They've been told... N times by their parents, where N is a fairly large integer. <laughs> and and <laughs> whereas other boys um, are quite the opposite, and you encourage them by saying, look, you can do this, you've got potential, you're clever. And so it depends entirely on the individual. It really does. They vary enormously. Two things you remember about David's teaching style is handwriting, for a start. Yeah, so... so this guy had the most incredible, neatest writing you have ever seen. Like, everything would just be perfect the first go. It looked like a textbook that had been blown up and stuck on the wall. So, um, you know, there was a bit of a black market going in and getting Dave Sadler's notes, the other classes, because all the other teachers had, like, you know, shaky writing and bad graphs, and all the other classes would want Dave's notes because they just looked so beautiful. Um, and, you know, they'd always be copying, copying them out of our, our, our books in, at lunchtime. And I still have all those notes. And, you know, when, every now and then when I've forgotten what, you know, what a derivative <laughs> is or anything like that, I just go back and it's just crystal clear. Some, something you worked on particularly, Dave, or just obsessive-compulsive on your part? Or? That's very obsessive. Actually, it doesn't look that good when you're standing a few centimetres away from it. 
but the further back you get, the better your diagrams look. Although you always sat down the front. No, that's because I had bad eyesight. Oh, okay. <laughs> I presume there's also galaxies of which you could say up close don't look that special, but the further away you get, the sexier they look. That's mm. right. The full stops. Let me quote something Brian wrote. A great source of mystery after the end of every maths class were the intriguing full stops. David would put these everywhere, sometimes mid-sentence, sometimes at the end of equations, sometimes twice in a row. Once he had left the room, we would pore over the whiteboard, searching for these secret symbols, circling them in a red marker, trying to divine some sort of hidden message. To this day, I still wonder what he was really trying to tell us, end quote. <laughs> David, put the professor out of his misery. What were the full stops about? Oh, that's my OCD as well. I can't, I can't, I can't explain it. I, I didn't know. I didn't know I had all these weird tendencies. I, I, <laughs> but starting tomorrow when you're writing on the whiteboard, you're going to be like, should I do that? I am pretty... Look, I was trained by Bill Pender, and he's obsessive about setting out mathematics and making it sort of perfect. So if you start a line, so x equals 3, and you don't put a full stop, Bill would get upset. So I mu he was... You'd rather err on the side of a few too many full stops. Because... <laughs> Well, that might have just been my nerves. I might have been... I'm, I'm not sure. I, I can't explain it. I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> it's great. We have here a room full of students mm. who've been inspired by teachers, a room full of the teachers who've inspired these brilliant students, the TSP alumni. One of your philosophies, and it's captured in the program, smart students need smart teachers. Well, it's been a bit depressing seeing your own kids go through school and sometimes have very dodgy maths teachers. Mm. And it's not just because I live in the Sutherland Shire either, the Deep South, as I, I like to call it. Um, really, it, it is really quite upsetting. One of my daughters ended up not doing maths in year 11 and 12 because she had a shocking experience in year 9 and 10. And because she was my daughter, we couldn't really... It's the, it's the sort of parent-child thing... You know, psychiatrists have the worst behaved kids and all that sort of... Well, <laughs> my kids, we couldn't really sit down and talk... My three daughters, we couldn't really sit down and talk about maths without tears and all these sorts of emotional issues. So, anyway, she, she had a very bad teacher in Year 9 and 10 who, was, who, who, who wasn't even very good with the English language and she just completely switched off and mucked around and it was a, it was a debacle. But I think just generally, if you've got people who come out of high school, go into teaching because they didn't get enough marks to do anything else, did a very bad two-unit maths exam in the HSC and then end up teachers, I think that's a real issue. And, of course, it's now the case where 40% of maths teachers in this country are not maths trained. They're PE teachers or language teachers or music teachers Fundamentally, 40%. It's, it, it's amazing. And they might so, be great at music or language or physical education. They might even make reasonable maths teachers, but they'll teach mathematics from the point of view of monkey see, monkey do, because that's all it ever was to them. It's like bake, baking... It's like a recipe book. This is how you do one of these and this is how you do one of those. Whereas when, when you're fortunate enough to be in a selective school and when you're passionate about mathematics and reasonably good at it yourself, you can take a completely different approach and you can actually try to teach it um, 
as, as a, a proper classical discipline where you unpack the maths, talk about the theory to the extent that the students can follow it. And that's the great thing about maths, you know, proof. And mm. it's only in maths you have absolute proof. And you can make an absolute fool of yourself if you, if you don't get it out. Let me hone in on that passion because uh, Brian said at the end of this email, he sent me with his thoughts on you. Jesting aside, David Sadler was an amazing and inspirational maths teacher who proved seer provided searingly clear insights, gave us the understanding needed to get to the heart of every problem, repeatedly conveyed to his class the deep elegance and beauty of mathematics. A man of unparalleled patience, with his enthusiasm always just barely in check, Dave's given an abiding love of mathematics to an entire generation of boys at Sydney Grammar. So please give Dave Sadler a big round of applause. If you want to move down the end there, Dave. I'll move across to you. And the, uh, the irony in that email that Brian sent me was that that email then continued, after all those years with Dave, I eagerly signed up for maths at uni. But my first year maths tutor was some debater slash comedian slash mathematician guy named Adam. <laughs> and it was just never quite the same. And the, and, and the funny thing is, and I mean no offence by this at all, Brian, I don't remember teaching you at all. <laughs> but I think that reflects a lot more on me as a teacher than you as a student. We're going to eat now the flip side of this, a young student who's been inspired by Brian, who was in turn inspired by David. And I'd written out an introduction, but the summary given on your program captures perfectly this, this quite brilliant young woman. Completing her HSC at Tara Anglican School in 2007, she enrolled at the University of Sydney Combined Arts Law Degree, studying physics in first semester. Alison was encouraged to participate in the TSP. Her involvement in the TSP enabled her to work with two leading astronomy researchers and ultimately took her into an honours year where she was with Brian as a supervisor in physics. Currently completing her final year of law at the University of Sydney, and she's just found out that she's earned a spot in the Master of Law program at the University of Oxford. So please give Alison Hammond a big round of applause. Great to meet you, Alison. Can you recall? Brian told us about first being approached for the TSP. When did the TSP loom in your life? Yeah, so I studied physics and maths in first semester in 2008, but being actually enrolled in an arts degree obviously wasn't particularly on anyone's radar. But then uh, Professor Dick Hunstead, who uh, works in the School of Physics, I assume just kind of was looking at first semester results. And the way he said it was sort of saw my name. It was like, we need to talk to this person. Um, and approached me at the start of second semester and told me, about the talented uh, students program and said, in second semester in physics, we do uh, projects, we work uh, with a researcher, uh, and do some real physics and do a little bit less lab. And that sounded really good to me. I also got involved in the maths SSP program at around the same time. You were put in the first year program with Professor Tuttle. In your first year of the TSP, you and the professor discovered a new planet. Yes. For me, my highlight of first year was discovering Manning Bar. <laughs> You've discovered a planet. Tell us about that. Um, so, obviously not a planet in our solar system. Mm. Uh, we kind of know about those. Uh, but you might be aware that one of the most exciting things uh, in astrophysics at the moment is the huge number of exoplanets. We're discovering planets which are orbiting stars other than our own sun. Uh, so back into, we now know 
of hundreds of them. And I think back in 2008, we knew of about 300 of these exoplanets, but we had just started building telescopes uh, with big enough uh, mirrors, about eight meters across in places like Hawaii and Chile, that were actually powerful enough to detect uh, these planets directly, not just from the gravitational pull they have on their host star, but to actually see them. Obviously, very big planets, uh, but it was one of the first um, opportunities, I guess, anyone had had to try and find planets in this way by directly imaging them instead of using kind of gravitational or spectroscopic light effects. Um, so kind of using that process, it was a matter of looking at these sort of candidate stars with these images of things possibly that were planets over a period of time and seeing if the small, faint, splodgy thing was orbiting the big, bright thing, which would indicate it's a planet, not just a star that's further away. And so, Brian, when you got to, in her honours year, supervise a young woman who'd already discovered a planet, you must have been pretty chuffed. I actually didn't know she'd discovered a planet. She didn't even tell me. She didn't tell you. She said, it was funny, because she came to me saying, look, I'm interested in doing honours with you, but you need to know that I'm actually an arts major, and I haven't taken any of the maths and physics background, and, you know, I really don't have the sort of rigour that... Um, other students might bring, um, so you're taking a real risk with me. And uh, so, you know, I did a bit of, you know, unusual for a student to warn you in this way, so I did a bit of research, and I think I, I asked um, Tim Bedding, you know, the student Alison Hammond, um, what can you tell me about her? And I think Alison said, uh, sorry, Tim said, uh, you need to take this student. Um, she is, the, you know, the best student we've had in a very long time. But can I home in on the fact that she did not drop into conversation? <laughs> That she, if I discovered a planet, I would get tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> Ask me about the planet I discovered. I don't generally tell people, but I do have one friend. So I uh, was working with Peter Tuttle and also my friend Matt Hill in first year. And this one friend we both have introduces Matt and I with, this is Alison, she discovered a planet. Or this is Matt, he discovered a planet. And we both are just so like, oh, yes, but... That's a bit embarrassing. I, I spoke with Brian about what the moment of discovery, the moment of realisation is like. What, what, what's it like, both of you, when you've done it in more than one field? Now, when you see something, you know, observe in the broader sense of the word, that no human being has ever seen before. Alison? Yeah, it's real. First of all, it was the best thing about my first year at uni, as you said. It really, I think it's probably the reason I continued on with my bizarre physics major and an arts degree, is it was like, I'm doing something real. I've sort of been at school, I've been learning stuff, and that's been good, and that's exciting, my other classes, but this is what it's about. This is science. And it was really, really exciting to have the sense that I'd contributed something to the field. Can I ask you, Brian, describe Alison as a student in three words. And Alison, describe Brian as, a, as a, an academic mentor or supervisor. You've got three words each, so use them wisely. Brian, what would you go with? Okay, so I, I would describe Alison as uh, dogged, um, just will not give up, um, very, very determined, um, elegant, um, and insightful. Okay. What would you say, Alison, about Brian's mentorship, his supervision? I thought of my three words already, but one of them is actually the same. Right. <laughs> yeah. I would say Brian is also insightful, um, hugely just asking really good questions, for instance. Um, he's 
uh, prolific. He does so many different things. Um, but with that, he's generous uh, with his time, with his thoughts. Um, I really appreciated that. You are violin and ancient history in particular are also things outside of uh, the physics you were doing and now the law you're doing that also inspire and interest you. What is the role of those sort of not full-time intellectual pursuits in just sort of sustaining you? Yeah, so I um, played violin for a long time all through school. I still play in the band at my church. Um, my arts major was, in fact, history, so... Um, really enjoyed that. I've finished and not done history for a couple of years now, but still really enjoy uh, reading about it, talking about it. Um, I don't know, I've always been someone who's been interested in almost anything. Um, if someone's enthusiastic about it and explains it, and I feel very blessed the fact that I just find anything interesting uh, in that way. And so, Brian, when you're not getting excited about magnetars, what, out, what outside of the field, what are your hobbies or pastimes that keep your mind ticking over? Oh, well, I'm, a, I'm a simple man. My, my great three loves, my, my, my passions are, are rugby league, science fiction, and constitutional law. And so I'm now living out my, my <laughs> fantasies through, through Alison, who's studying constitutional law. I'm pumping in for information and sort of wishing I could be following her path. Because you're, 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 I think tomorrow you're submitting a major essay in constitutional law. My law honours thesis in constitutional law due at noon tomorrow. And so you're jealous. You, this is, Alison, check this. I mentioned this, and, and Brian got a little bit excited, and I thought he might be egging it on slightly. And uh, I, back at university, studied a tiny bit of law, did a constitutional law myself, and could remember a couple of vague concepts and mumbled something about some famous legal case. And Brian said, give me a second, I'll just check it on my constitutional law app on my phone. <laughs> You've got an Australian constitution app. And, and US constitution as well. Okay, <laughs> you like constitutional law, you've proven that there. But Brian, some people, Hearing that Alison is her final year of law and heading off to the Masters of Oxford and like might mean, and I mean no disrespect to any lawyers in the room when I say this, but some people might react with, what a waste. What, what, what a waste of a scientific mind to then go on a, a jurisprudential career. Is that, a, is that a fair thing to think? No, I actually am thrilled when my, um, my students, you know, do what they came to do with, with physics with me, but then go on to something else. Because I think one of the most important things we can have is a society seeded with people from all walks of life who appreciate the value of science and know what scientists do. So I know some people wring their hands when their student says they're leaving astronomy, and I think, yeah, that's just awful. Wouldn't it be awful if someone left astronomy and you know, went into politics and became prime minister and, and they had a science background? I mean, that would just be the worst thing. It'd better they stayed in academia. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I have many students who are doing all sorts of things, so working, working the law and defense, school teaching, um, you know, based overseas. And the fact that you know, I've had a chance to sow these seeds, not just in my own narrow field, but in all walks of life, I think is, is an important duty for all scientists. I'm going to take your questions of our panel in just a couple of seconds. So if you've got a question you want to ask when I ask, please throw your hand in the air. We probably won't have time for many of them, so don't play it too cool for school and think I'll just hang back and ask the fourth question, because there probably won't be one. But um, <laughs> we were talking earlier, David, about a former student of yours who I knew at university, a guy called Mark Leeming, yes. talented mathematician, now a recent Supreme Court appointment, recent. but still kept the love for, for mathematics burning. He still kept his love for mathematics. He became a lawyer and a very successful one, but he thought, hey, I, st I think I'll just do a bit of maths. I feel like doing a bit of maths. So he 
did a PhD at Sydney Uni in, in maths. So that's a lovely story about an all-rounder who never lost his interest in mathematics. And but when, we, when we were here last year for the Harry Messel's ISS 50th anniversary, Robin French, who was the Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia, spoke because he had, as a 16-year-old, sat in on only about the second or third of the ISSs that had ever been held. So there's a precedent there, if you'd like, Alison. Certainly so, and I know there are at least three other lawyers in the room, which I found very reassuring because I was a little bit worried being on this <laughs> panel this evening, coming, talking about science, and then confessing that I was, in fact, doing a law degree that people would sort of throw stones at me. So I'm glad that there are, in fact, numerous people in this room who've done the TSP uh, science uh, program and are now practicing law, and I'm sure are using what the experiences they had there in an entirely different field. Would anyone with our audience, you know, audience like to besiege our panel with questions about anything about their experience in the TSP or our Brian about literally anything in the universe? Got time for a couple of quick questions. <laughs> Throw your hand in the air. I will repeat the question because we're recording it. So please don't feel as though I'm patronising you by repeating your question for the panel. Who's got something they'd like to ask of our panellists? I like the two questions we've had so far, but I think we can do even better, I say, setting it up so no one feels like they're going first. Over to you. I say, <laughs> padding for time until I see a hand. Oh, yes. What would you like to ask, mate? For people not familiar with Michael Bishop, another person you named as having inspired you. Tell us about Michael. Yeah, so, um, so uh, Ben and myself and Jeff and Anthony, and there's probably quite a few people in the room, all came through um, Sydney Grammar and, and were taught by Michael Bishop. So Michael um, was a science teacher at Grammar who taught there for um, what, 20 plus years, about 20 years, a bit more. And he actually had a, a PhD in chemistry. He had gone to um, Cambridge, I believe, to get his PhD, and then had gone back into school teaching. Um, but he had the view that the, the bright students in his classes didn't just have to, uh, shouldn't just be taught the curriculum, but then um, should also be um, exposed to research. And so, um, I think I had Michael for four years out of six, so you can do your, your combinatorials on that. Um, but you know, the, apart from just being a, a damn good teacher, um, he said, we're, gonna, we're done with the textbook, we're going to go into Sydney Uni, and I'm going to show you how to do X-ray crystallography. And he explained to us all the physics behind it. Um, then we actually came into the chemistry building and we did the experiment, and then we came back to school and we analysed all the data and calculated the structure of a crystal. And that was extraordinary because it was so it was just nothing like anything we'd done in class it exposed us to research for the first time and I think a lot of the people in that class um, just got a fix from that from that moment where we we're exposed to research what's it like David in a school setting or in any, any educational setting where there's a critical mass of really talented passionate great teachers mm. that must also be inspiring for the teaching group Yes, my colleagues at Grammar are an exceptional bunch, and that's that's really Sydney Grammar's great, greatest um, boasting, bragging right, so to speak, is the calibre of the staff. Uh, funnily enough, not so much the math staff. We're we're sort of underqualified compared to some of the other faculties. The English faculty, the science faculty, full of PhDs. Amazing for a school. 
But people, Michael Bishop was phenomenal. He was passionate beyond belief. He was single-minded. He, you had to run with him. He, he didn't tolerate fools. You had to be able to run with him. But his work in academic extension would be very hard to ever duplicate. Phenomenal. Any other questions for our panel? Anyone got anything they would like to ask? I want to take you on the point that Trevor raised about the two-way street. He said that in the same way teachers can inspire great students, when there's a certain critical mass of quality in the student group, that inspires teachers, makes it a place that people want to teach, might even keep teachers involved for long periods of time. From both of your perspectives, what's it like to have been teachers of great students? Uh, well, I, I can, if, if, if I can answer first. So I, I was um, living overseas in the US at, at Harvard, so things were pretty good. Um, and when I was thinking about moving back to Australia, um, I was very hesitant because I didn't want to spend the next 20 years thinking, oh, you know, this isn't Harvard, what have I given up? And so when I visited uh, Sydney Uni a sort of a year before and sort of about to take the plunge to say I'm going to resign and move back here, um, I talked to some of the staff and some of the students and I was reminded just how good the students are here. And that was basically the only thing I needed reassurance on. And that, you know, I wasn't worried as to, you know, whether the university had, you know, 500 years of history or billions of dollars in the bank account. Um, the bottom line was, once I was reassured that the students here were off the scale, um, I felt very excited and very comfortable about coming back here. And that, and that you know, I haven't once thought, I wish I was at Harvard, because the students here, um, Alison and many others that I've had the chance to supervise, have just continued to impress me and humble me with just how, how sharp and quick they are. Is it a good thing, David, or is it sometimes mean if you just want to phone one in and sort of cruise through a maths lesson, you really can't because there's a group of young punks looking to take you well, down? <laughs> I've, got, I've got the top year 12 this year, and it's one of the very best that I've taught. And I, look, it's just a great privilege. Uh, it's, you know, it's a blessing, really, to have been 34 years in a school where you're regularly matching your wits with some phenomenal students. It, I've been very fortunate. Very fortunate. And to sit here with sort of two generations of that now, you must be mm. proud of what we're watching tonight. It's not good when you teach the sons of people that you've taught. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, to, to know that you've influenced Alison and to know that you've learned from Dave, that's a, a very sort of special space to hold there. Well, in the same way that you said that Sydney Uni is like, you know, this chain going back to 1860, um, Science is a chain that goes all the way back to Kepler and Newton and Galileo. And in fact, I've done my academic geology with all my PhD supervisors going back to like Rutherford and Thomson. And so the idea that you know, everyone contributes a bit, but it's not just about reading what other people have done in books and building on that. It's about passing on your ideas down the chain. And, and the idea that you're actually a link in that chain holding on both directions is, I think, pretty cool to know that you're both rewarding the faith people have paid in you but you're also having a chance to pass it on. It's just a, a great feeling. It's, it's the ultimate concept of teamwork to know that there's this generational passage of knowledge. Any chance, Alison, that the astrophysics might one day just <laughs> lure you back? There's still more exoplanets out there to find, you know? <laughs> um, at the moment, the plan is to practice as a lawyer, but I've always said, if I don't end up liking it, then I'm not gonna stick with it. Um, I wanna do something I really enjoy, and I really enjoyed physics, and at the moment, I really enjoy law as well. Um, but if at some point that's not true, 
um, then I'm not going to keep doing it for the sake of it. Um, but even if I never... I'd say that's exactly my plan too, that I like <laughs> go, go to a law firm if it doesn't work out. Oh, with physics, right, yeah, in opposite. Yeah. You're not talking about sabotaging my legal career, <laughs> so I don't enjoy it. <laughs> but even if I never go back and work as a physicist again, it's still going to influence what I do every day. It's going to influence the way I think, the way I talk about issues, the way I communicate to other people and contribute to society as a scientifically literate person. I think that's going to be enormously valuable to me. Three amazing people, three links in, as Brian said, an incredible chain. Please give them a big round of applause. David Sadler, Brian Gainsler, Alison Hammond. Thank you so much, guys. How about you see tonight? Good on you. Now, this is, as uh, was made clear by Trevor at the beginning of the night, a celebration of 20 years of the TSP, 20 years with an asterisk, 21 if you conclude uh, Brian's special pilot program year. But what would a 20th or 21st birthday be without a degree of celebration? And you'll notice at the front of the room here, we have a cake. And in fact, in front of it, come and have a look later, the most beautifully geeky cupcakes I've ever seen in my life with little Bunsen burners and strings of RNA and all that sort of stuff on them. Who better? Uh, the TSP itself, of course, cannot cut that cake. Who better to do it than the two gentlemen who forced clause 17.2 through all those years ago? Bob Hewitt and Damon Ridley. Give them a round of applause, please. Guys, come on forward. Let's get that camera ready. We've got a knife. Great stuff. Happy birthday to the TSP. Well, that's all the time we have in this week's edition of the Mr. Science Show. A big thanks again to the Sydney University Faculty of Science for allowing me to use this audio from the 20-year anniversary of their talented student program. Again, this is their audio, so please send any love and praise their way. If you'd like more information about this event or anything else that we've spoken about on the podcast, my website is www.mrscienceshow.com. That's www.mrscienceshow.com. And from there, you can find us on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, whatever social media network takes your fancy. My name is Mark West. Thanks very much for joining me. I'll see you next time on the Mr. Science Show. Whoa.